Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Coming up, we discuss the genetics underlying the size of molar teeth in mammals, and we learn about some exciting new genomics methods being developed to help breed drought-resistant maize crops. You could say that this episode has a lot of food for thought to chew on. I'm so sorry, that was a terrible pun. Now, one thing that I love about science is how international it is. And the global appeal of Heredity and the diversity of researchers that publish in the journal is something that we are incredibly proud of. So today we are embracing that and bringing you interviews with two researchers who inhabit different continents, different hemispheres. They don't even share the same first language. But what they do share is a passion for genetics, which has led both of them here to discuss their fascinating new research with us. First up, we have Dr. Nicolas Navarro from École Pratique des Hautes Etudes in France. And I do so apologize to any French speakers out there. I really did try. Dr. Navarro is a morphometrician who mainly works in the genetics of shape. And he is the lead author on the recent heredity paper, Genetic Mapping of Molar Size Relations Identifies Inhibitory Locus for Third Molars in Mice. Now, teeth are incredibly important for mammals, and molars in particular show a great diversity of size and shape across mammalian species. Why this is the case is exactly what Dr. Navarro has been looking at, using mice as a model system. But before we get into the details of his work, I was curious about something. Why are teeth the focus of so much research? In mammalian teeth, we, we, we saw a very large variation. And in, uh, in paleontology, the, the tooths are the, the main remain we have uh, in fossils. So they were studied for a really long time. We know a lot of the evolutionary pattern. Many things have been described. On the biomed side, tooths are very uh, common in many diseases. So problems in tooth shape or size are, are very common. So the, the interest in the, in the tooth are really on the, on the two sides. The teeth are really interesting. You said that they're really common in the fossil record. Is that because they're really hard material? They, they preserve really well? Yeah, the, the, the enamel is something very hard, so they preserve very well. Especially for small mammals, the main fossil remain you have is the, is the teeth. Excellent. One thing that's quite interesting in this paper is that the main evolutionary model you were looking at is this thing called the inhibitory cascade model. Now, I think it's a really cool model, but it might not be a term that lots of people are familiar with. So what exactly is it and how does it relate to mammalian teeth in your system? Okay, so the the inhibitory cascade model is a developmental model that explains the relationship between sizes of uh, molars. The molars develop in cascades. So once you develop the, the first one, you have dental laminin that go out of the first molar and start the second one and then so on on the, on the third. And the size of the first molar will impact the size of the second and the third. The bigger the, the first molar is, it will uh, inhibit the, the second one. So that was shown uh, like 10 years ago uh, on the developmental side. And the paleontologists take it to try to look in the fossil record if we can find this model and this model can explain the, the morphological diversity we saw in the, in the mammalian teeth. Actually, they, they found it and that they found also that many, many groups show something similar, but was not the exact same model that, uh, 
that the developmental biologists pick up on the on the mice. Okay, so so the sort of broad scope is that there's been this model for a while that says the teeth have an impact as they're developing, but you know there must be a genetic element, and that's what you're going to find. Something was missing in the, the evolution of the model. Let's say the EC model is a ancestral state, and then probably some derived state evolved. But to evolve, you need that there is a genetic variant that controls this uh, relationship. One interest of the paper was to really look for the first time if we had genetic variation for the relationship between the molar sizes. What we found is that we have a genetic element that underlines the, the model. Excellent. And you were using inbred mouse lines for this work, which is a classic model system. And there were some really interesting ways of measuring teeth, and you had some really interesting molecular methods in there as well. So maybe you could just explain what kind of methods it was you were using and how they're really helping you get at these questions that you're asking. So we use two classical inbred strains. So their uh, genome is all the same. So we, we cross them for two generations. And so you mix up the genome. So using this kind of cross, you are able to look on the genome where is some variant that have an effect on the phenotype you are looking at. So the size or the shape of teeth. So it's really a classical uh, method to be able to modelize. So it's... Uh, it's not like a genome-wide association mapping where you have a many, 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 many uh, markers on the genome and the variants are very, very low frequency. Here, you have two things really uh, control and you cross them and look if there is region on chromosome that have an effect on the phenotype of your interest. That was the genetic side. And uh, on the phenotype, we analyzed the the teeth, and uh, so we CT scan, so we use a microtomography, computerized tomography with X-ray. So it's, it's like a stack of X-ray. From that, you can uh, reconstruct a tooth in 3D, but then you have, a, you have a 3D model of surface, and then you have to try to modelize to the, the size and the shape of the, of the tooth. So what we have used is a, is a model of particles. You put thousand particles on the on this surface, and you optimize the position of the particle on the tooth surface by uh, trying to minimize the, the differences between individuals, and together at the same time uh, maximizing the position of the particle on the tooth. So you have these really detailed structural models and you have these really interesting and really sort of high resolution genetic studies as well. So I guess, what do you see as being sort of real strength of your project and this sort of real key outcome? The key outcome is that uh, for the first time, we were really able to pick up some uh, genetic variants and natural population that influences the relationship between the size of models. We named this uh, relationship QTL. They, they have been described for like uh, the relationship between long bones in mice. So we hypothesized from the, the 60s and we can have negative interaction between uh, some molars because of the inhibition of the others. The third molar may disappear and in the human population, we have that and many people don't have the, the third molars. And we have this developmental model that, that explains this pattern but in a way, we didn't know if in a natural population, you have variants that influence this inhibition. 
And by doing this cross and mapping those variants, we are able to see, yes, in a population, we have variants that affect the relationship between molar, so affect the inhibition, meaning that yeah, this inhibition can evolve. So from the ancestral state of the, the inhibitory cascade, we can probably make this model evolve and explain all the peculiar models we can find in the fossil record of mammals. That was Dr. Nicholas Navarro, lead author in the paper Genetic Mapping of Molar Size Relations Identifies Inhibitory Locus for Third Molars in Mice. And the good news is, it's open access, so you can go and check it out. It's a great mix of development, morphology, and genetics. Next up, we're jumping across the Atlantic to Brazil to talk to Dr. Maria Marta Pascina from Embrapa Milio Isargo. I guess I also need to apologize to any Brazilians out there. A quick note on this interview. At times, you might notice a bit of a sudden shift in audio quality or tone. Don't worry, we're not trying to trick you. This is the conversation that we had. But the first time we recorded this, we had some technical issues, so we had to re-record some of it. That's all that is. Dr. Pascina is one of the corresponding authors in the paper, Improving Accuracies of Genomic Predictions for Drought Tolerance in Maize by Joint Modeling of Additive and Dominance Effects in Multi-Environment Trials. And for those of you out there who are a bit unsure what maize is, like me, you probably call it corn. This paper is a bumper crop of authors and analyses, and it's on a topic close to many people's hearts and dinner plates. But first of all, I just want to know why we really had to develop drought-tolerant crops in the first place. Climate change is affecting weather patterns, temperatures, and rainfall worldwide, which directly impacts water resources, crop production, and food security. Water deficit is one of the major constraints of crop production in tropical areas. Because of the impact of climate change and the limitation of water resources to irrigation, yield stability obtained through improved drought tolerance will be highly desirable in the future of agriculture. So, the development of drought-tolerant cultivars with yield stability in areas that are prone to water limitation is one of the current challenges faced by maize breeders. Perfect. So, I mean, you mentioned maize. Is there a particular reason that you're focusing in on maize itself? Brazil is the third largest producer and the second largest exporter of maize, which is the most produced cereal worldwide. In Brazil, maize is usually cropped in two different seasons, called safra, the first season from August to March, and safrinha, the second season from February to June. Of this, the second season produces the larger and more important crop, but water limitations due to strong variations in rainfall can drastically reduce grain highlighting the importance of developing drought-tolerant maize hybrids. No, great. That makes it sound like an incredibly important crop to study. So your paper was essentially trying to identify new traits in drought-tolerant strains of maize, and you were kind of looking at how well something called genomic selection can help us in identifying these new strains over more traditional pedigree-based approaches. So these might not be terms that people are entirely familiar with. So I was wondering if you could just explain what a pedigree approach is, what a genomic selection approach is, and why the genomic selection approach might be a bit better. Traditional breeders commonly use pedigree-assisted selection for breeding most crops, which requires an accurate knowledge about the breeding genealogy for several generations of testing and advancing lines. However, the expected and the realized degrees of genetic similarity differ due to factors not accounted for by the pedigree data, such as Mendelian segregation. For example, even full-sib individuals will have different allele combinations across 
Marker-assisted selection is an alternative method, where genetic markers associated with genes of major effect on interesting traits are used to select untested individuals with favorable alleles. Genomic selection is a recent and more accurate version of this that uses genome-wide marker-based methods to predict genetic responses of untested individuals using high-density markers to estimate the realized genetic similarities between individuals, lines or hybrids. Appropriate genomic selection methods can provide accurate prediction for untested individuals, lines or hybrids, resulting in a considerable progress for breeding programs, reducing the number of field-tested individuals with a consequent reduction in phenotyping costs. The benefits of genomic selection are more evident when traits are difficult, time-consuming and expensive to measure, or when several environments need to be evaluated. No, I mean, it sounds like a really cool method. So I guess, what was the main aim of your study? In breeding programs for drought tolerance, individuals are usually evaluated in well-watered and water-stressed trials across different years and locations, in which an effective phenotypic screening for several traits is often laborious and time-consuming. Thus, the release of new cultivars with yield stability for areas that are prone to water limitation is a critical and challenging task. In maize breeding, hybrid vigor is widely explored to generate new cultivars, and and corresponds to the outstanding performance of a hybrid relative to their inbred parents. The hybrid vigor is usually attributed to non-additive genetic effects, in particular to dominance effects. Thus, the success of using genomic selection to predict the untested maize hybrids for drought tolerance requires genetic statistical models that simultaneously account for multi-environment trials as well as for additive and dominance effects. The main goal of this study was to evaluate the accuracy of genomic selection to predict the genetic response of untested maize single-cross hybrids under well-watered and water-stressed conditions using a high-density SNP marker panel and a multi-environment trials genomic selection model incorporating additive and dominance effects. Mixed models were used to fit genotype by environment interaction effects and allowed exploring the genetic and residual correlations across environments, improving the predictive power of genomic selection models. So I guess the big question is, what did you find in your study when you're using genomic selection to look at these drought-resistant traits? Our results showed that combining well-watered and water-stressed trials into the genomic selection framework provided larger accuracies to predict the genetic response of a hybrid under optimal conditions when this hybrid has already been tested under drought. Moreover, dominance effects had an important contribution for the genomic prediction of grain yield, whereas small differences were observed between the predictive accuracies of additive and additive plus dominance models for secondary traits, such as ears per plant and flower time-related traits. These findings suggest that the genetic architecture of the drought tolerance trait directly affects the prediction accuracy of additive and additive plus dominance models. Furthermore, based on the latent regression plots, it was possible to select among all high-performance hybrids those with stable additive effects across environments. Their inbred parents can be intermated to improve hybrids' stability and ex the expected genetic gains. 
On the other hand, high-performance test cross hybrids showing stable additive and dominance effect across environments can be directly indicated as a potential hybrid cultivar for a given environment. Our results, based on tropical maize germplasm cultivated in Brazil, in addition to allowing a better understanding of the genetic architecture of target traits, they also show that it's possible to achieve high levels of predictive accuracy of untested hybrids for drought-tolerance-related traits by including genotype-by-environment interaction, additive, and dominance genetic effects, simultaneously into a multi-environment genome prediction framework using realized genomic relationship matrix estimated through genome-wide SNP markers. If you had to condense all that really cool modeling and all of the cool genetics down into sort of the key message, what do you think it would be? The genomic selection framework evaluating this study can be properly used to predict the genetic responses of maize single-cross hybrids. It is an interesting approach to increase the selection efficiency, to optimize crosses, and to accelerate the genetic gains for drought tolerance in maize breeding programs. In addition, the genomic prediction models using this study can be easily extended to accommodate environmental covariates, which can be useful to predict untested hybrids in new environments, based on the realized genomic relationship coefficients between hybrids and also based on the environmental correlation between target environments. Thus, the genomic prediction strategy evaluating this article can be directly used to help breeders in the process of generating new inbred lines and new hybrids in maize breeding programs for drought tolerance. That was Dr. Maria Marta Pestina, one of the authors in the recent paper, Improving Accuracies of Genomic Predictions for Drought Tolerance in Maize by Joint Modeling of Additive and Dominance Effects in Multi-Environment Trials. We could have, and to be honest, did, talk about this for ages. So if you have time, please do go read the paper and check out everything we just didn't have time to cover here. And I'm afraid that's pretty much us for this month's episode. Almost. If you listened to our episode last month, you'll know that I'm really keen to try and share some of the wider experiences from Heredity and the Genetic Society. Now, I have some things in the work for this, but I also would really love to hear from you, the people who keep both Heredity and the Genetic Society going. For example, on the 13th of July, GenSoc hosted a big event where some of this year's medal winners gave talks about their work. Did you attend it? Fancy sharing your thoughts on this or any other event you've been to? Do you want to share an experience you've had getting published in the journal? Want to talk about a time you got a grant from the Genetic Society? Nobody knows how you're interacting with the society and heredity more than you. So tweet us at Heredity Journal or drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com and we'll see about getting your story featured on the podcast. But that really is it for this episode. My thanks to Nicholas and Maria for sharing their recently published research with us. And remember, both papers are open access. So head over to www.nature.com forward slash hdy and give them a read. While you're there, you can also find out more about heredity and how you can get your work published in the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. To keep up to date with the podcast and find out about breaking heredity news, you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. You can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter, at Gensoc UK, and find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 